Ricky asked yesterday whether I was nervous. I said, no, how can you have a better audience than a bunch of people who want to hear you? Uh, good morning. My name is Simon. I'm a grateful recovering compulsive overeater. Now that you've seen the brand new blazer I bought last month, I'm going to do a Leo Biscali. I'm going to take it off. My first gift to myself when I came into program was at about, oh, I guess about six weeks. It was taking out an old belt and uh, after I had just given myself the first, I bought the first super superficial, superfluous thing in my life, and it was this belt buckle. It's a picture of the walrus and the old man of the sea, and on the back of it is a quote from Alice through the looking glass. It says, the time has come the walrus said to talk of many things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax, and cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot and whether pigs have wings. It goes on, the quote is incomplete here. See, this is the story about how the old man of the sea is getting the um, scallops or the clams to come up through the sand so that they hear this gobbledygook and it says and he, he's then about to take them up and put them in a boiling pot of water for dinner it says but wait a bit the oysters cried before we have our chat for some of us have grown old and other of us are fat and so it's time for me to tell what I was like what happened and what I'm like now since Time is short, even in an hour and a half. They said a picture's worth a thousand words. I've got a few thousand words to save. See, I, I stopped using this belt. The reason I had to retrieve it was that it no longer fit. Um, you know, it. I wish I had brought chance to bring my pants. I usually get a nice skinny girl up here, but I. I've learned to avoid getting into those situations today. <laughs> when I came into the, I'm going to see if I can get untangled and get up front so the people can see me and we can get away from the hum so that the tape quality is a little bit better. When I came into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous about seven years and three months and 25 days ago, uh, I came in because, I should say, I'm Dr. Simon Rosenberg. I'm a dentist. I was doing an internship at a hospital, one of the leading hospitals in Boston. I had just gone through a tremendously difficult month. It was the Monday after Christmas of 1975. I, was, I had just failed an insurance physical. I had failed it because not only was I overweight, I was 143 pounds uh, the weekend before, Christmas, before Thanksgiving. I was spilling protein in my urine. My lowest blood pressure was 156 over 112, and that's after I had taken a large dose of sugar to lower my blood pressure. The doctor would not tell me what my blood pressure was. He says, uh, it's a little too high for you to pass the physical. You must be nervous. Uh, my pulse rate was over 110. Uh, he says, why don't you go out, have, don't have anything with caffeine in it, don't have cola, but have either some orange juice or some orange soda, and add some extra sugar to it. Come in, lie down for about 10 minutes, and we'll take your blood pressure again. So I don't know what the highest was, but it was typically at that point about 170, 180, over 115. I was 25 years of age. 
and I went home for the Thanksgiving weekend, determined that I was going to lose weight. Everybody came in and said, Simon, you've gotten so gosh darn fat. Well, wait a second, you're home for the holidays. Why don't you come into the kitchen? We have all your specialties. You see, Thanksgiving is one of the many multiple holidays that we have in which it's uh, the national pride or the national sin for mothers and aunts to commit genocide upon their relatives <laughs> by feeding them to death. See, the difference was is that I was off and running. I had dieted for about two days, and that was it. And I couldn't stop. I decided I had tried Atkins Antics. I had starved with Stillman and had multiple trips to the room next door because of all the water I was drinking. And what happened was is that I went on a diet and I failed. I gained weight. Clothes were getting tighter and tighter. I came in. Uh, I had to get new uniforms. And even those new uniforms, which were two sizes larger, were becoming tight. You know, I had the belt on, but I never was able to fully zip my pants. And one of my patients, the last one on the Monday afternoon, spoke about the fact, she said, you do nutritional counseling, because I don't know what the sugar intake is like here, and whether you have fluoridation or not, but Boston is not fluoridated, and has about four times the sugar intake in New England of any of the other regions of the country. And so we have tremendous decay rates, and one of the things that we do in dental health is to try to give people a five-day food diary. We go through the number of carbohydrates, the number of refined sugars that they're taking, and we try to multiply that by the 20 minutes of acid production to show how much acid they're producing, how much decay that they're causing. And we teach them about periodontal disease. And so as part of the intake, that's what I normally did. And this patient asked me, you're still doing that? And I said, yeah. She says, you're having much success? I said, that's been one of the most frustrating parts of my practice. See, for instance, today I had a 118-pound gal, and she would come home and she used to eat junk food after she came home from school. She was a college student. I said, and she would look so much better if she was 113 pounds, because that's what the chart said she was supposed to be. See, here I was at 243-plus pounds trying to tell this gal that she should be on a diet and should modify the way she was eating and the way she was living her life. My patient was very smart. She knew my resistance. She said, you know, there's a group of people who talk about how they're able to avoid compulsively overeating. And, you know, when they know they shouldn't eat something, but they have the urge to eat it, they have a program that allows them to get through that moment or to get through that hour without eating it. I said, that would be a great program for me to be able to teach my patients. And so I walked into the rooms not for myself, but so that I could help other people. And we arrived a little bit late. We arrived at the Lindemann Mental Health Center, and I knew that was a, both an inpatient as well as outpatient facility. Uh, I did not change my clothes. I came in in size 46 um, hospital whites of an intern. And I walked into the room, and there was a skinny little gal in front. We weren't quite sure because they had just changed the room, I believe. And the gal says, you're in the right place. Have a seat over there. You know, talk about anonymity. How did she know I was in the right place? <laughs> and the skinny little gal, I resented her immediately. I said, she's going to tell me as a fat person what I'm supposed to be 
you know, telling skinny people. And she sat down and she told her story. And I understood why she overate. See, because she was from a divorced home. Her father was a baker and they used to eat the cripples. You know, those are the things that just don't come out quite right and are not saleable. She used to eat the leftovers that were unsold at the end of the weekend. See, she was always exposed to it and probably had very bad habits. She worked in the store from the time she was five. She had gotten involved in drugs and had identity crisis and I understood her psychological problems. She had tried a geographic cure and had gone to California from the Boston area. And so I understood that she ran away from her problems rather than face them. Except when she began to talk about what she was doing with food. See, the psychological part just melted away. See, because I found out that I was doing the identical thing with my food that she was doing with hers. And I'll talk a little bit about what that means, what it meant for me to be a compulsive overeater. How many people under six months in program do we have here today? Okay, you're the most important people in this room because it's the, it's just the joy of beginning to emerge from that cloud of compulsive overeating, from the prison of compulsive overeating, it really allows me to share. I have a... Mildred T. of Dearborn. Thank you. Another announcement. Okay. See, my pattern was such that I was very successful at dieting. I would go from about 220 down to 200, 195, only to very slowly go back up. As I mentioned, I tried Atkins Antics. I started with Stillman. I left Weight Watchers after the first meeting because I knew it would not be successful for me. The reason it would not be successful had to do with me. So I walked in line and the woman in front of me, uh, or actually I think two people in front of me, was getting on the scale and, you know, they've got this lecturer who's been successful in the program. She's got a card of what your weight has been, and they weigh you in. And she goes, gained another half pound this week. I see we have our period for the third week in a row. And I knew that I would not have an excuse. <laughs> I mean, you all had an excuse, maybe, you know. It was change of life or hormonal problems or it's that time of the month or it's the middle of the... You know, I felt as if I would not have the excuse and as if I, wasn't, if I could not be successful, that I could not take that type of criticism. I would always wait until Monday to begin a diet. I would go out Monday evening, buy an entire week's worth of dietetic food, usually to find that by Wednesday it was entirely gone. And I had to go back out and buy another week's worth of food. And I was buying literally seven days worth of food. My Friday evenings were interesting. In terms of low self-esteem, I would go to various dental school mixers, medical mixers, college dances, Friday afternoon letdown. There's all sorts of different names for them, usually around medical centers and college campuses. And what I'd find was that I'd go in. I know I'm not an alcoholic, per se, because when I have a drink, I want to eat more, and it allows me to eat more. I don't want to have a second drink. Uh, that release of energy, whatever it is, 
causes me to go to my primary addiction, which is compulsive overeating. And I would socialize, and I'd ask women for their phone numbers, but like the Groucho Marx line, I'd never join a club that would have me as a member. Any woman who would give me her telephone number probably didn't understand me, was probably after my money, which I didn't have. <laughs> I was living in an 8 by 10 room in the back of a doctor's house for $85 a month and had $200 a month in expenses. And even back in the 1970s, uh, that was not a lot of money. And then I would take the, you see, I always saved up $10. Imagine what $10 does for a date today. You know, but that was going to be the magical date in case I met somebody that I had the willingness to take out. I would say, you know, let's go out to a movie. You know, let's go out to have something to eat. Except that by the time I got to meet somebody, even if I wanted to, I didn't have the self-esteem to be able to ask her out. And besides, my head was already into what, al what alternatives ways of spending it. In terms of dishonesty, I think the greatest dishonesty was what I did when I bought binge food. See, because every Friday I would leave wherever I was, go to a particular carbohydrate store, go to the various aisles, buy the foods in a pretty regular pattern, except that when I checked out, I had to say very distinctly and clearly in a low voice, well, I guess the stuff I'm going tonight will be enough for the card party and whatever's left over I'll take to the party tomorrow. The checkout girl didn't really care why I was buying the food. I had to let her know that all this food was not for me, except that she knew that it was all for me or that I usually bought the same things because she'd say, you know, it's the week after Halloween, we have the five pound rather than the three pound bag uh, on sale. Or we have a special in the end of the aisle, there's some partially open uh, bags and you can get three for the price of one, you know. And I'd say, no, no, no. I knew what my fix was. I was like the heroin addict that would not buy more because I didn't want to make myself too sick. I opened the couch, which was my bed. I crawled into it, and I slept with the crumbs until all the food was gone. In the earlier part of my disease, whenever I opened a package, and it didn't matter whether it was a package of cheese or a box of something, the amazing thing was that I was unable to go to sleep until the box was finished, and if somehow I did pass out, then the first thing that I did, it didn't matter how full my bladder was, on the way to the bathroom, I had to stop and make sure that that last thing was gone, because I couldn't function unless I had finished the package. There was a lot of insanity. New York, Boston is not terribly different, I presume, actually, I think. This area is a little bit milder by, because of the lakes, but Boston generally winters are between the 20s and uh, teens at night. I used to get up in the middle of the night, had to have something. I would throw on my pants without underwear. I'd throw on my jacket without a shirt. I'd throw on my, my boots or shoes without socks and go out to one of the stores that was open 24 hours a day until they had the absolute nerve to close the store at midnight Surely I was buying enough at 1 o'clock in the morning that they should have remained open or at least consulted me to tell me that they were closing earlier so that I would, you know, make the decision very much like, you know, last call for the bar. Well, I came into this program and my trip here has been a very, very strange one. It's been my own individual one. 
when we came in, when I came into the program at that time, the World Service Office was not at all organized. We didn't have much literature. We had five or six, I think we had about five pamphlets. We had If God Spoke to OA, To the Newcomer. We had the Dr. Lindner explanation of the program. We had a program of recovery and before you take the first compulsive bite. And I think that's all we had. Plus we had two diet plans, one that was printed on gray paper. It had originally been printed on blue paper, but they ran out of paper just before conference and they just ran it off on, uh, on the stock that uh, proof paper that printers use for the cheapest uh, proof run. And since the conference kept referring this thing to the gray sheet because apparently they had a couple of different colors of meal plans, it became, and they ha ended up having to print it on gray paper. You know why blue sheet was blue? It was supposed to be gold. We've advanced. We now know that gray doesn't sell very well. And the printers, when they do proof runs on their press, they now do it on blue paper so that it looks nicer for the customer. And so the initial, you know, when we had the conference four years ago, we printed it on, or five years ago, we printed it on blue sheet, on blue paper. And we kept referring it to blue sheet, and they decided that we had to do the final run on blue paper. And then we had an argument the following year, and we entrusted Fred uh, asked many of you know him to go back and we wanted to have a setup so that it was tear off but he decided that since uh, we didn't know anything about nutrition we should try all these plans and he came up with all a bunch of plans and he had different groups one meeting became you know the number three plan and the other became number four plan and make sure everybody you know lost weight and if somebody lost weight on it it got included in this book it wasn't a tear off system it wasn't what the conference wanted in fact, I work in cancer care. Dignity of choice usually refers to the patient's right to choose to not have um, extraordinary measures used for sustaining his life. It's the phrase of the right to die people. Uh, but that's, we, get, we get all of these things not, you know, not carved in stone, you know, but passed on by just personal human experience and fate. And a lot of things are very unique. See, when I came in, the World Service Office, as I said, only had these five pieces of paper. We were run out of a post office box. The literature was in one person's garage. The office was in somebody else's house. And at that time, the guy who was handling the literature orders uh, was eating. And if he had been eating, he wouldn't go to the mailbox and pick up the orders. And if he picked it up, he didn't mail it. And so we did not have uh, any of the literature available and we certainly didn't have the diet plan which when anybody came in and there was a diet plan they bought the diet plan not much of the literature and so for the first few months everybody talked about this gray sheet we also had an orange sheet but you really weren't on the program if you follow the orange sheet because the orange sheet had four differences it had uh, whole wheat bread it had oh I forget a couple of other things uh, had regular milk in addition to skim milk because somebody figured out that it, you need to have the fat that's in regular milk um, and you can't absorb all the proteins and you lose some of the vitamin A if you don't have because it's a fat soluble pro or vitamin D so you need that. Uh, the fourth one is tomato juice and the reason was that the gal who wrote it uh, decided that it was very hard for her to carry a fruit and since orange sheet people are allowed a fruit at lunch she wanted to be able to carry a thing of tomato juice. That's why tomato juice was on there. 
At one point, Bananas was on gray sheet, but then they took a vote, and how many people were regaining weight at the maintainers meeting who were eating bananas, and they found out that people who were maintaining seven, it was only like 17 people, I think nine out of the 17 people who were using bananas were gaining weight, and the other people were losing weight, so they took bananas off. The point was that I didn't know what the heck to do. I heard all these different things about food plants, and I couldn't find one. And so, I mean, I had come there to help other people. And so if I was going to follow a food plan, I was going to make it up myself. That may or may not have been a good idea. You'll hear about that later. At the end of the meeting, somebody walked up to me, a little old lady, and she said, you're the most important person at this meeting. You see, these other people have heard my story, but you haven't. This program has saved my life, and each time I'm able to share, I can remember what it was like to be a fat woman who was about to die and who was saved from death because I had high blood pressure and she talked about her medical problems and she said since I've lost the weight I've lost all the medical problems I'm off of medication my blood pressure is normal most of the people in my family die of heart disease it's true for me as well as for this woman and she said would you come back next week so that I can talk for you know talk more with you I could not come back for myself and so the following week, I felt guilty because I had a medical conference. I couldn't get back. But the week after that, I did come back for her. And I heard my story again because I was doing the same gosh darn thing that these crazy compulsive overeaters were doing with their food. And so I went on my own form of abstinence. I didn't like that word. I thought it had a sexual connotation. And since I had been celibate I didn't want to also be abstinent <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't by choice that I had been celibate but that's a whole nother story because I had a patient who bit me who was a untreated syphilitic uh, and I ended up having to be treated for syphilis and I hadn't had sex in a year and a half <laughs> and the health clinic wanted to know why I was being treated for syphilis and who my contacts was and I said I wish I could tell you you know, and they said, well, what is his name? And I said, no, that's not my preference. <laughs> so I was very embarrassed and I had to go back and, you know, work very, very hard on my sexual inventory when that finally came up. I tried my own form of abstinence. I calculated how many calories I needed. I was eating at that time. I figured I needed about 3,600 to maintain. Based on what had happened in previous diets, I figured half of that would be good. You want to hear the insanity? One half gallon of vanilla ice cream contains 1,800 calories. And I went on one half gallon of vanilla ice cream a day, and I figured out that there's milk in there for the protein. I figured out there's cellulose. Well, that's like the bulk for the salads. I sat down and calculated that the fruits were equivalent to the sugar in there. I was sick. I lost about 15 or 18 pounds in the space of about a month and a half following that as my food plan. And then I introduced different other foods and I switched things around and I went to moderate meals. I learned things along the way. They said at one of the meetings, and you'll hear different things, and it may not apply when you first hear it, because the person ahead of you, the person that's speaking, may have experienced something that you haven't yet experienced but are about to. And what transpired was the fact that I left a Friday afternoon 
beer blast and I couldn't drink because I knew that somehow my eating and my drinking were linked. I knew that I was abusing food at these Friday afternoon things and I decided if I was going to eat garbage, it wasn't going to be the garbage that they put out to have with the, you know, the nuts and the pretzels that they had with beer. I was going to go for the hard stuff. And somebody said, if you want to eat and you're going out to eat, then why don't you stop by a meeting and make really sure because, you, you know, we get certain clarity and certain insight at meetings. Go to a meeting, you know, and maybe in an hour and a half your feelings are different. You may want to eat even more, but if you notice that you, your feelings are different after a meeting or after just waiting or after meditation or after writing, then you can see that the feelings are not absolute facts, that you don't have to respond to that feeling of, you better eat now because you're going to be dead in five minutes because that's the type of feeling I had when I needed to eat. And so I added a second meeting. I stopped off at a meeting. And I added a third. And I added a fourth. And I began snowballing. I was on a pink cloud. And I got abstinent. I, somebody said something about 301. And I followed three meals a day. And I had nothing in between other than diet soda or, or tea. And the weight started coming off. As you go around, there's a picture of me in a blue suit. And there's a close-up of my face toward the right side of those pictures. I thought I had made it. I, was 30, I had lost 35 pounds or probably more than that. I was down to 205. And my goal was only 200. But I knew that I needed something more. It was proved to me. I had been programmed for five months. I then came to the month of June of 1976. And what transpired was the fact that all of a sudden, I couldn't get to meetings. I was doing an anesthesiology rotation. I was on every other night for the entire month of June, which basically meant that I was up for 40 hours straight, off for eight, on for 40, and off for eight. I did 31 cases of general anesthesia, got very good at it, got very cocky. Except when you're up those type of hours, you learn to function in a very crazy sort of way. They have a huge coffee urn, and I couldn't drink coffee because it upsets my stomach. The other source of caffeine is the packets of hot chocolate. And they have graham crackers with honey and with um, jelly and with peanut butter to put on it. And that's the way I survived. And I knew I was on a sugar high, and I knew I was holding on for dear life. And I knew that I had allowed my program to slip. And I knew that I, could, I felt as if I could not reach out to my support system. I was getting to perhaps a meeting every other week. I came to the OR on the 29th of June. And what transpired was that all of a sudden, I put a patient to sleep, young man having four wisdom teeth out. And I couldn't put the tube into the lungs and the vocal cords had closed. And I called over the staff anesthesiologist, and he got nervous. And the patient started turning blue. And all of a sudden, I realized that somebody might die because I was intoxicated on sugar that morning and because I hadn't slept. And we tried various things. He started having some change in the heart rhythm. We put in some additional drugs. We try to breathe for him through a mask, and we're unable to do it. 
We gave him an additional drug, and I said, let me just try something. And I stopped for a second, and I prayed. See, I was like that person holding on to the twig. See, because when push comes to shove, and we need help, we're always asking. You know, at that time, we're always asking, we're always bargaining. You know, God, please don't allow this man to die because of my incompetence. I'll get to that OA meeting tonight. And so I picked up the tube and I lubricated it, I put it into his nose and then blindly just passed it into the lungs. And I figured out how the, you know, and I pushed on the chest and I heard that we were moving air through this thing and I hooked it up to oxygen and he started waking up and we gave him more drugs and put him back to sleep. <laughs> and we went on with the operation. He never knew the difference. And I figured out how this program works. I intellectually understood it. What you do is you stop and you pray and you all of a sudden get the power of clarity because you've unblocked that anxiety attack. And that's all this God bullshit was. Except that two and a half hours later, I was to put another man to sleep and it was a repeat performance. Only his heart came very close to stopping. He was throwing what are called PVCs. And it didn't work to just take it and blindly put it in. We had to use more drugs. And we finally got the thing in. And I realized that I better investigate this God thing because it wasn't just Russian roulette. It wasn't just my regaining my own self-will. I went to that meeting and, God, I wish he was here today. He's a couple of years ago, a few years ago, this gentleman moved into this area and, and had some problems. And he was unable to make it when I came up in April of 81. Uh, and I haven't really spoken with him since. He's been in my prayers. But this guy who had lost a lot of weight stood up and held up this crazy gray sheet. And he says, you know, the answers are on the back panel and we all, when we open a mystery book, usually read the last couple of pages, but we don't believe it, so we always go back and we read the entire story to go through the kicks of it. He says, but this sheet has saved my life. The back panel tells the entire program However, you'll probably begin at the beginning. And the simple thing, if you looked at this thing and you felt as if you'd die if you followed it for one day, well, I followed it for so many days and you won't die. You'll feel like it perhaps for a while. He says, but just read. And he says, at breakfast it says you have a fruit and there's a list of fruits and there's a protein and it's a list of proteins. And for lunch you have a salad and it defines its three three little vegetables you can hold in your hand, or one cup if you like to measure. And He went through a little bit about what this sheet had on it. And he talked about substitutions and the different rules. He said, do it for one day. And if you wake up the next morning, and instead of saying, how the hell did you do it to yourself? You say, my God, I didn't wake up dead. Because that's the feeling I had when I went to sleep. I had to have something more before I went to sleep. Because if I followed that stupid sheet, I'd wake up dead, which meant that I wouldn't wake up. And I thought I was surviving with my food, and the food was not survival. So what I found was that I needed to follow the sheet, and I did. He suggested that I get a sponsor. I did. He suggested I write down my food. I did. He suggested that I call somebody up in the morning and tell them what I was going to eat. I thought that was silly. I did not. But I followed that gray sheet. And I started losing weight very rapidly. I lost approximately a pound a day. On July 21st, I had lost 21 pounds. 
and I was absolutely miserable. I had back-to-back -back ratio abstinence, and I came to Bill, and I said, Bill, I don't understand it. I'm the lowest weight I've been since I was in seventh grade, and I'm absolutely miserable. And he said, well, if the elevator success isn't working, why don't you try the steps? I said, what is that? what, that's a cliche. What do you mean by it? He says, well, out at the Wednesday meeting in Brighton, uh, they just are beginning the steps. I suggest you just go and sit through the cycle of the steps. They'll do some reading. They'll do some sharing. You just go and keep your mouth shut and listen. And since his suggestion a few weeks ago, he says, and maybe you'll wake up. And his suggestion a few weeks ago worked, and so I tried it. I walked in. There was a skinny little old lady in front of the room who I resented terribly, particularly since they had the absolute nerve to have started the steps two weeks before. I was angry at Bill because how dare he send me? I have to begin my steps at the beginning. How dare he tell me to walk into a step two meeting? Except the theme of the meeting was came to believe. And gal just went on and on for about 45 minutes just on those first three words of the second step. And I said, what is she, retarded? It's a much longer sentence. And she went through it. She says, just come. You know, leave the debating society behind. Leave that judgment and that doubt behind. Just come to meetings. Bring the body, the mind, they'll follow. She said, then as you hear people sharing, and she says, listen to whether they're philosophizing, whether they're sharing what's happened to them. Then you may come to believe, or you may come to, as if coming out of anesthesia, that you too, you know, that something's happening in them. And you may then make the next step that you too could have what this person has. And you'll come to believe that the program worked for them and if it can work for that fat idiot, because most of us up here are pretty stupid. You listen to what we do, and you have all the answers for us. So I always had the answers for people who called me up and wanted to eat. I tell them, don't eat. What's the problem? You know, and they go on and on. I said, what's the problem? She said, I'm getting anxious over what she originally thought was the problem. Or I'm getting fearful over. See, the problem was not that the daughter was going off to get married with somebody she disapproved or the boss was going to fire them. It was our own individual fear of economic insecurity, our not knowing the right thing and afraid to be wrong. That was my biggest character defect, still is. I'm afraid to be wrong. I don't mind when I'm wrong, but I have a fear that I'm going to make the wrong thing and you're going to say, you should have done it the other way. You know, you did the wrong thing. See, I don't mind that I made the mistake. See, I buy clothes, and if they don't fit, I just, put them in the, I just put them on the shelf. I don't return them. I'm able to accept, well, it's a few more hours' work. I'm able to go through experience and say, that really wasn't worth you know, the $7.50 to go to a you know, movie or the $15 to take out you know, to go to a movie with somebody else. So I can make those judgments, and I can live with them. I'm afraid of judging myself. You, know, you moron, you wasted the money that part of it that's my greatest character defect today. And so what happens is I just went to that step meeting. I continue to follow back-to-back ratio abstinence. I lost 42 pounds in 42 days. I was blacking out from low blood sugar. I had at that, when I first had the physical, I had 135 fasting blood sugar. Over 100 is an indication of some problem. 
So I was pre-diabetic. I had high blood pressure beforehand. I had lost the weight so rapidly I had low blood pressure. The doctor says we're going to put you in the hospital unless you are able to maintain. Thank God that was a Thursday. I pleaded not to go into the hospital. I went to my first weekend retreat and there were people there who sat down to tell me about how to maintain. They suggested that I sit down and that I probably wasn't following the gray sheet. They said, what do you mean? I've been following it. I've lost 42 pounds in 42 days. They said, that's right. You're probably not following it. She says, look at the protein list. They knew at that time that I was beginning to follow some religious dictates in terms of choice of foods. There's certain things I didn't eat. I didn't eat oysters. I had given up shrimp and ham. And they said, well, that's on the gray sheet. You're not following the gray sheet. I said, well, I've, you know, taken those off for me. They said, okay. They said, well, I noticed in a restaurant you ate such and such. And I said, yeah, I make the substitution of such a, you know, a particular protein with something else. I think it happened to be we went to a Chinese restaurant and I ordered tofu in my Chinese mixed vegetables. They said, tofu's not on the gray sheet. I said, yeah, but I know that so much tofu is equivalent to a protein. And they said, well, why don't you sit down and write Simon sheet? I said, but I'm getting sick on this. They said, that's right. Sit down and write. And I made up exactly what my food plan was, what my protein lists were, what my fruit lists were. In addition to the rules that I was following that were printed on the gray sheet, my substitutions, what I could do in the event that I hadn't gone out, I used to split my dinner. If I was very tired after work and I was going to a late or a long meeting, I would have my salad before the meeting and then I'd have my protein and cooked vegetable afterward. And they said, okay, now figure out how much you would need to add of those items that are already on your food plan in order for you to maintain. I needed three times gray sheet. And that meant that every morning I had to have three cups of salad with a salad dressing. I had to have a fruit. I had to have 12 ounces of protein, or the equivalent. And that was my first maintenance. They also said, if you want to make any changes, you have the following rules that have worked for us. And these were people who were maintaining five and six years at the time. They said, sit down and write a list of Simon's changes or alterations to Simon's sheet. And I put down, you know, I couldn't continue that for more than a week or so. I came back, by the way, the following week I lost one pound. The doctor agreed to see me on a weekly basis, and if I didn't lose more than one pound, I could do it as an outpatient. Otherwise, I would have to come into the hospital to regulate my blood sugar, and so I was very motivated. They said, write down what you want to make a change. I want to have baked potato with dinner instead of having all that extra salad and you know, two cups of vegetables. That seemed logical. They said, okay, write it down and don't do it for a week. Because if every day you say, next Monday I'm going to have a baked potato, then right now they had the concept of craving creating foods. And at any one time, there have been certain foods that for me may be on my quote-unquote abstinence plan, but if they're craving creating, I need to look at it and to do some changes with it. And so what I did was I waited a week. They suggested that I not bring that food into the house because since it was one thing that I was, you know, wanting to change my food plan, it still was suspicious. Maybe it was because I had fear about this. 
and had come from a very regimented food plan at this point. But what I did was they suggested call up an OA friend, call up a friend, preferably an OA, say, you know, before the meeting or after the meeting, I'd like to go out to such and such a place, and I've committed to my sponsor to make a small change in my food plan. If you wanted to, you could say, I want to add a baked potato or, you know, whatever it was. I want to add a slice of bread. And then wait a week. Because the next morning you may wake up and say, that baked potato was pretty good. I think I'll have it with breakfast. And so baked potato may be a craving creating food for you today. And thank God there were people around with maintenance that were able to help me handle the physical. After lunchtime, when I speak again, I'm going to go through very, very specifically uh, the spiritual, emotional, as well as some of the physical things of how to maintain. We're going to go through steps really uh, 10, 11, and 12 after lunch. See, I had come to an experience in which I needed God's help, and I was willing because other people's lives were on the line to trust them. Yeah, that's what happened in June. Over the summer when the doctor wanted me to put on, and I was terribly confused because I was thin, I was looking well, I was buying new clothes. I was willing to, through other people, as you being the messengers, be willing to accept it. There's the story of the uh, Eskimo. I like most of the stories. They help me. The Eskimo story is the story of the guy who was caught out in a blizzard with his sled. And it's so oppressive that he's unable to continue, and he turns the sled on the side. And he begins to pray to God as his feet begin to get numb, and he's run out of the food that he's provisioned for himself. And he's praying to God, and just before he blacks out a couple of days later from the cold, and he's already lost feeling in his hands, just as he blacks out, he's rescued. And he's being interviewed at the press conference in the hospital, and he's angry because he's lost some fingers and he's lost some toes to frostbite. And he's sitting there and the reporters are asking, and he said, did you have anything spiritual happen to you? They said, no. He's still very angry at God. He said, well, did you pray to God? He said, I sure prayed to God. I prayed for him to stop the blizzard. I prayed for him to allow me to get out of there on my own two feet. And now I don't even have complete feet and hands to be able to do that says, well, you're alive and well in this hospital. Don't you believe that God had any part in it? God had any part in it. Hell, it was an Eskimo who rescued me. <laughs> we are each other's Eskimos. Most of the times, we can't save ourselves. How many times do you have people in this program, particularly people involved in intergroup or doing service, or they've been treasurer at a meeting for God knows how long, or book chairperson or secretary, and they're telling you what to do, and they're not fully recovered, either physically, emotionally, or spiritually. Many of us are so good at rescuing other people that we're unable to rescue ourselves. The miracle of this program is that you don't have to do anything. You will hear your story, you will relate to it, and will learn a way of life that will lead you out of that. The thing to do with these people is to love them. You don't have to take all of the insanity. You don't have to enable them. If you think that they're not right for the job, then don't re-elect them. You know, but don't throw them out of the meetings. And don't ban them. There's something very interesting about this disease. 
unlike all of the other diseases that we have that are infectious, this disease is not. You will not get fat by staying with fat people. If anything, you may recover a little bit faster because you'll see and hear and live the acute pain that these people are in. Little things, your bottom will raise. Little things that used to be, well, I'm just going to put that on the shelf today. You'll see it in other people who are not recovering and you will not allow yourself to continue doing that insanity in your life. There's a group in New York that has been among the most influential in my recovery in the last four months. It's a bunch of very, in a sense, pathetic people. Do I have to wait? It's a group of people known as adult children of alcoholics. These are adults. They were raised in alcoholic homes. And what I think they've done is they, in their insanity, and many of these people in years past would probably in mental, be in mental institutions. Many of them have been. Many of the people are the very low bottom, very early people, very similar to the early people in AA. Uh, they're people with multiple names and multiple personalities. There are people who are very calm and then bite your head off. And I've seen tremendous amounts of recovery from dysfunctional people. I've come to believe that if it can work for those crazies, it can work for a form of fat person. But what these people have come up with is what they call the laundry list. See, because one of the things, and scientists are beginning to understand it, uh, we grew up with a whole set of things, and the only way we learned to survive was to compulsively overeat, to ease the pain, and to act in ways that reinforced the insanity. Most of us believe that things would be a lot better. It would be easier to have abstinence if our life ran smoother. It would be easier if we were able to cope with what was going on if you want to intellectualize it. If we felt as if we were on firm spiritual footing, we'd be able to recover a lot more quickly. See, their laundry list is rather interesting because it presumes that you grew up in a home in which the behaviors that you developed probably don't work in society, but were absolutely necessary for your survival. If you've had problems doing a fourth step, maybe that idea may help you. You have character defects, which are very, very painful. They were ones that were very, very good friends. They were ones that allowed you to survive in a home of insanity or an environment of insanity. The problem is that they just no longer work in the outside world. And furthermore, they prevent you from being you. The problem. We seem to have several characteristics in common as a result of being brought, in, being brought up in a compulsive, obsessive household. When I first came into OA, one of the pieces they had was a program of recovery. And they have what I call the uh, moron uh, test. I got 100%. I was 100% moron. <laughs> I was 100% moron food than on anything else in my life. And I answered yes to, I think, 14 or 15, 14 out of the 15 questions. And I think the 15th one that I didn't answer uh, was mostly denial. <laughs> we became isolated and afraid of people and authority figures. We became approval seekers. And some of this thing talks about what the problems are. 
And as a result of it, we lost our identity in the process of seeking others' approval. We are frightened by angry people. How many of you have problems dealing with someone who's angry or hostile? And we are frightened by any personal criticism. We either become alcoholics, compulsive of readers, gamblers, debtors, marry them, or both. Or we find another compulsive, another compulsive personality, such as a workaholic, with whom we can continue the kind of relationship we had at home with our parents. This next one is the absolute description of me. Even after seven years of recovery, until I walked into these rooms, and I've been in therapy for four and a half years, and I never saw, I don't know, I'm sure that we discussed it. I know we discussed it, because I was ready to hear it. We live life from the viewpoint of victims and are attracted by that weakness in our love, friendship, and work relationships, career relationships. We have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility, and it's easier for us to be concerned with others than with ourselves. This enables us to avoid looking too closely at our faults and our responsibilities to ourselves. You ever get yourself too tired, too angry, too lonely, too hungry because you had to do service or you had to do something for somebody else that you really didn't want to do but didn't know how to say no? We get guilt feelings when we stand up for ourselves and instead it's easier to give in to others. We become addicted to excitement. I surrounded myself with disaster because I got a neurotic kick. I went out with inappropriate women because they wouldn't be there for me or because it would be exciting if somebody found out that this was a ooh, ah, relationship, you know. Simon's doing this and thus and thus with so and so. See, I look for the neurotic kick. If I was in a relationship with somebody else, if I was in just normal healthy competition with a coworker, I turned it into a death-defying conflict and contest. See, it wasn't just that I wanted to be the best Simon I could be. It wasn't that I wanted to be better than the other person. I wanted to be better than the other person and be able to say that I was better than the other person. And that last piece was more important. Today I've learned that it's not the most important thing to be, in, a, in my own value system, absolutely right. But I can be there for people who are engaged in something which is a thing of personal growth, but may not be the way that I would go about doing it. I don't have to totally support them. I can say, I don't quite know whether the road that you've cho chosen is right. <coughs> But if it seems right for you, go for it. There's a lot of pain associated with that. I did that two years ago with someone who's very, very close and very, very dear to me for three years. They're not speaking to me. They're not speaking to three of my best friends who were also very close with this person because they couldn't accept the fact that we said, go for it. If that's what you want to do, we don't probably think it's appropriate. And it may not be God's will for you to be doing this now. And when it came to the final vote, we couldn't vote for this person. We felt there was somebody else more qualified to lead. 
And so the person just left, left our friendship of many years, and in a sense, stepped back into a different path within the entire OA fellowship. I find out about these people. I still love them. I still say prayers almost each and every day. But I no longer need to enable or to people please. Having denied our feelings during our traumatic childhood, we lost the ability to feel or to express our feelings. How many times have I said, I know I'm overwhelmed by this, but I can't tell you whether I'm angry? See, I only experienced rage, which is so overwhelming that I didn't know I was angry. <coughs> Something would happen that would be terribly joyful. I couldn't feel the joy. I knew that this was one of the greatest accomplishments of my life, either an award I got or an invitation to speak in my professional career or an assignment or somebody's trust. I knew that I should be absolutely joyous, but all I felt was, gee, this is another positive step. I was so overwhelmed that I might not be capable of carrying this out. I was so overwhelmed by the greater meaning of it that I was unable to really be with just that experience of being acknowledged. We lost the ability to feel or express our feelings because it hurts so much. I experienced joy as hurt, and these people said it for me. This includes our good feelings, as, such as joy and happiness. We judge ourselves harshly and have a very low self, uh, sense of self-esteem. I was just like that person. I would take the phone number and throw it away because I wasn't worthy of going out with that woman. We become, and here it talks about relationships with others, we become dependent personalities, terrified of abandonment, and are willing to do anything to hold on to a relationship. This is the result of having lived with people who were never there for us emotionally. And I didn't understand that. See, I couldn't trust that I would get the feedback that I was promised. See, I came home and I usually had very good grades, but because I was afraid to be criticized, I immediately said, I know I have a pretty good report card, but there's this 185. And that was probably the lowest grade I had. I already put myself down because I was afraid of your rejection. And my mother said, well, he's so knowledgeable about what he's done. Very good, Simon. My parents knew that I was so good that they felt that they were wasting their time going to open school night. My sister was having a lot of problems in school. And if there was a conflict, they would go to her school. She's four and a half years younger than me, and so other than when I was in sixth grade and she was in first, uh, there was very little. We were really never in the same school together. But I always felt that that meant that they didn't care. They always thought that since I acted so mature, I didn't need the positive strokes and the positive reinforcement. It was only a misunderstanding. I interpreted through my very personal eyes, that I had to act a certain way, and yet those actions deprived me of exactly what I needed. If I would have acted vulnerable and say, I don't know how you feel about this. I work so hard, and I've done so well in some of the subjects, and I feel terrible about the 85. See, but I didn't present it that way. It's a good report card, Mom, but I did 85, and I'm going to have to try real hard to get that grade up, and I'm not satisfied with it. 
Well, I had already made the judgment and the analysis, and my mother wasn't going to disagree because she felt to disagree was to deny her love. All she was going to do was approve. You're right, Simon. That's exactly what the report card means, and she put it aside. She never really heard me, and I have to let go of that because she never had parents that could read. You know, we had these anecdotal report cards. Her mother never understood. She was an immigrant woman, was self-taught, had never gone to school. Her husband had gone to immigrant school when he came over here so that he could get his citizenship, and she took the classes so she could get her citizenship. But English was not her first language. It was not a ang uh, language that she responded well to, and so my mother never knew what sort of approval I needed because she could not, because of language barriers, get that. Her parents never went to open school night because they were afraid that while their child spoke fluent English, that they would somehow denigrate their child because they did not speak fluent English. And so the values of my parents were passed on to me. Only I interpreted them through the eyes of someone who was modern. My parents didn't care. They were just doing what they were taught. But it was no longer appropriate for them to act the way that their parents had. See, the problem was, it's no longer appropriate for me to act out in food. You know, rats are a lot smarter. There's very good evidence. If you take a rat, and there are four mazes, four doors, and there's a maze behind it, and at the back of maze number one, you put cheese, and the others have nothing, you very quickly can train rats. You know, the rat will run into a door, run around, will come back, it'll go through various things. It'll smell the cheese, and it'll keep working until it finds the cheese. And then if you take it away from the cheese, and you wait a few hours until it's hungry again, and put the cheese in the back of maze number one, it'll finally learn to immediately go to door number one, go through maze number one to find the cheese. And you can program the rat very quickly in about three to four days. If all of a sudden you change the rule and you put the cheese behind maze number four, the rat will, when you release it, run, go to door number one, go to the back, be very puzzled or unsure, you know, be confused as to why there's no cheese there. It'll go back out, look at the four doors, go back to the door that it's been trained to. But after two or three attempts, that behavior is extinguished and it goes looking randomly and it will retrain itself to go to door number four. My survival in the past, because I did not have a 12-step program, was with the food. <coughs> the problem is that I keep insisting on going back to door number one to try to find the food when there's no reward at the end of that maze. The rat learns to go to a different maze to get its reward. I hold on to that branch because I'm afraid to be supported by something that I can't see. The fourth step, which I did for the first time at that same retreat, was very, very painful. They said that I should sit down and there were many ways to do it. The first fourth step I did was take a sheet of paper and on one side to write the positives and to write down all of the pluses, all of the things that I would want said about me, all of the things that if somebody put a gun to my head and said, I want to know who Simon is, can you ride a bicycle? You know, if they had a checklist, 
of what I thought was important. Somebody put a gun to my head and said, what is it, is it really true that, I'd say I was an excellent bicycle rider. I rode English fairly well. I was a damn good dentist. I was compassionate. I was willing to sacrifice. And I had a list of things. I think it was 23 things. Then says, since you need a balance in your life, I want you to turn the page over and to write the things you don't like about yourself. The things that in the heart of your hearts you hope nobody ever finds out about. And for God's sakes, don't beat yourself up. If you wrote 23 things on the first side of the page, that's the limit. Write the 23 things that are most unsatisfactory, that are the most debilitating. And so I sat down and I wrote what's called the pluses and minuses inventory. By the way, when I got to about 14, it was hard because each word that I thought up was just a restatement of one of the first 14. In fact, three or four, of the, three or four pairs of the first 14 were just synonyms or another side of the same coin. And I realized that I had a lot fewer character defects they may have been a lot more ingrained. They may have shown themselves in a lot more ways that I didn't like about myself. But that I had a lot fewer character defects than I did strengths. They didn't feel the same. I could not endorse myself for the pluses and minuses. I held on to that inventory for a year and a half. I did not give it away. Six months later, and first of all, it says, we took a fearless and search searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Uh, it wasn't fearless, but I did it because they said, look, you're now going to enter the maintenance steps of 10, 11, 12. You better start doing the cleanup steps of 4 to 9. See, the steps can be divided really in three phases. The wake-up steps, 1, 2, and 3, rephrased, I can't, something can, I'll let him, I'll let her, whatever your concept of God is, I'll let that inner being in myself do it. The cleanup steps, four, five, six, and seven, which are the inventory steps, eight and nine, which are the amend steps. I held on to that inventory for about a year and a half. I got to Thanksgiving. I came in 70 pounds lighter than I had been when I first came into this program than people had seen me a year before. I couldn't understand what was going on. And so what transpired was I began eating. I reached maintenance Labor Day. By Thanksgiving, I had, I guess, three or four months of maintenance abstinence. I had about, at that point, five months of back-to-back -back clean, weighed, measured abstinence. I came back, and I went wild with the food, because everybody said, Simon, you're so thin. Come into the kitchen. We've prepared your special foods. I came to an OA meeting, and because I had not been stepped up in that very regimented group known as OA Plus or OA Westminster, now there are variations called How. Since I wasn't stepped up, I couldn't speak at the meeting. The only thing they allowed me to do was they allowed me on the Just for Today card. They said, we never had a man at our meeting before. And they said, we always read this thing about Abraham Lincoln. It doesn't sound right coming from a woman. Would you read it? You know, Abraham Lincoln says, that we're as happy as most people, most folks are as happy as they make up their minds to be. Make up their minds to be. They said, gee, that sounds good from a man. 
That was the only thing I could do at that meeting. And so I went back on Monday or Tuesday after Thanksgiving, and I couldn't understand how the hell I had done it again. I had five months of back-to-back weight measured abstinence, and I was weighing just because I would buy a half a pound of cheese and I would divide it up. I unitized everything. When I came into the house, I divided things up into little packages, and I had Ziploc bags, and I had gone to a Chinese restaurant and had bought from them the different containers and package, and I containerized. When I cooked, I then divided it into portions, and I threw out any partial portion and then froze my foods. And if you're having problems with foods, I'm throwing in different things that have worked for me physically, because I think it's important to have some of the information physically. And I couldn't understand what was going on. So I came back and I cried to one of my sponsors, and he says, get a sponsor. And I said, would you sponsor me? <coughs> and he was tied up that week with something else, and so I took another sponsor. And I called in my food for 10 days. I bought a scale. It broke at the end of the 10th day, and I decided it was God's will for me not to weigh and measure. I haven't weighed and measured since. I know approximately what portions are. There was so much pain involved in that. The person says, I think you better sit down and write an inventory. We had just begun. We had finished the 12-week cycle of the steps, and somebody said, let's go through the big book. We got one of the people who was very close with Bill Wilson, who came in and did chapter one, told us this story, and then said, here's how, you, here's how we run it in AA. We read a few pages and we share how we're working our program based on those few pages. And so I had just come to the part where I was reading about the fourth step again. And so I sat down and I did the resentments inventory. See, it says that you make it in three columns. I was so grandiose. I wrote the person's name in block letters on the top of it. I folded the sheet in half on the left-hand side. I wrote why I resented the person. It usually involved two or three pages. I was very good at holding resentments. I knew exactly why I didn't like people. And then it said, go back and take a look at how it reflects on you. And that's how I did my second inventory. Came February, I didn't understand, and I got back on maintenance. I was maintaining my weight. I celebrated my anniversary. Three months of maintenance, a year in program, 75-pound weight loss. Came to February, and I didn't understand why. I was slipping occasionally with different foods. And so I wrote another inventory. So I've been writing all these inventories, but I was unwilling to look at them. And somebody suggested that they write these things very, very specifically. Step five is admitted to God, to ourselves, and to, the, to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. And they suggested that I sit down and write an inventory and say, God, I'm going to put things down here on paper that I've withheld before. I'm going to write them down, and I'm going to do it through a train of thought. I'm not going to pay attention to grammar. I'm not going to pay attention. See, because before I had to buy a new notebook, a new pen, I had to clear the desk. I had to take a sponge and completely wipe the table. I had to buy a new bulb for the lamp, <laughs> because otherwise it was not going to be the right inventory. And so I delayed until I got you know, the right pen in order to write the inventory. At this point, I was in so much pain, 
I just took paper. I just took a big pen that leaked. My hands were blue afterward. And I put down every single thing that I found objectionable. Because it said, look, the first, you're not even going to admit it to yourself at the beginning. It says, just get it down on paper. Fearlessly, so don't even think about it. Don't evaluate yourself. Just let it flow. And I allowed it to flow. Then said, you sit down, and it says, admit to God, to ourselves, and to another human being. Sit down and write the serenity prayer, which I wrote at the beginning of each of the inventories. It says, write it all over again at the end. And say, God, I'm, I'm about to share with you the things that I know you know already. But I want you to stop a second and listen to me and hear what I'm saying. And I did that. I read them out loud, and then I waited. I was certain, I had the absolute certainty at the point that I read all of my character defects that a bolt of lightning was going to come, an earthquake was going to come, a flood was going to come. I was afraid to leave the house. And I, so I was just waiting for literally the end of the earth. I didn't know whether a missile was going to come. It was an overcast sort of day like today. It was absolutely dreary because I was certain that since I had just announced my inventory to God that he was going to strike his wrath at me and I prayed that it involved nobody else for my sins and then I got tired by waiting and I said you know there's probably some things on here that it's time for me to look at because if God didn't strike me dead then maybe it's time that I can face some of these things myself and I went back one by one over each character defect and I read it and I said the serenity prayer. And reading the serenity prayer after each of the character defects, it's amazing. Some of them were very painful. And so I said, God, grant me the serenity. <sighs> Except things are kind of changed. You know. The next one I read, God, grant me the serenity. Except the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can. I knew which ones I could change. And where I was confused, the emphasis was, God, I don't know what to do with this character defect. I survive by this character defect. I survive on knowing that I'm the best, on being perfectionist. If I don't do it on the basis of character defect, I know I do a miserable job because I don't want to be doing that. And so I had to say, well, maybe I shouldn't do it. But if I don't do it, like cleaning up the house, the house is going to be a mess and I won't like it. And then I'll have to clean up the house, and I'll resent, you know, having to clean up the house. I guess it's time for wisdom to know the difference. So I went back, read the serenity prayer. I held on to it for 10 days, found myself that I wanted to eat, and I sat down with somebody else. And she said, what did you leave off of there? And I told her my most embarrassing character defect. She said, well, are you the such and such variety, the other type? I said, I'm the such and such. I'll clean it up a little. Do you, bite your, do you bite your fingernail? Yeah. Do you chew it up and swallow it? Yeah. It wasn't fingernails. Can you stop doing it? I said, no. She says, okay. I do too. Somehow after my second inventory, I stopped doing it. And I knew I wasn't so terrible. 
And I was very embarrassed because I was telling my inventory to a woman. There were certain things on the inventory I never got to, certain things that I needed to say to another man because I needed that feedback. And I think I would suggest that you find a loving, caring individual to share it with. It's probably easier if it's of your same sex. But I took somebody who had, at the time, what I wanted. She subsequently has left program. The person who brought me to program has left program. But this program never leaves you because I get different messages and occasionally she'll send me a clipping from a newspaper out in California you know, with some article about OA because she knows I'm still interested and I'm still involved. And she's doing it by proxy. But people along the way have given me what I needed. It then suggested that I go home and I read certain steps. And does somebody have a big book? Oh. Oh, there's a big book up here. You know, we worry about all the difficulty of doing six and seven. Uh, six and seven are probably among the easiest steps. Oh, I think it's steps. Uh, there's an inventory on whether you did the proper inventory. On the bottom of 75, it says, returning home, we find a place where we can be quiet for an hour, carefully reviewing what we've done. We thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know him better. Taking this book down from our shelf, we turn to the page, which contains the 12 steps, carefully reading the first five proposals. We ask if we've omitted anything, for we're building an arch through which we can walk a free man. It says, is our work solid? Have we tried to skimp anywhere? Is there anything we've left out? If we can answer, yes to our satisfaction, we then take a look at step six. Became entirely ready to have God remove our shortcomings. Are we now ready to let God remove from us all things that we've admitted are objectionable? Can he have them now? Can they have them all, every one? If we still cling to something, don't worry about it. If you want to cling to something, it doesn't take it away. Will we now let go? We ask God to be willing. When ready, we say something like this. My creator, I'm now willing that you should have all of me, the good and the bad. See, I was afraid that God would reject me if I wasn't all good. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in my way of usefulness to you and to my fellows. Grant me strength as I go forth from here to do your bidding. You want to keep character defects that are very personal to you? You can keep them. The character defects that God will help you with are the ones that prevent you from being useful to others and to service of God as you understand him. And don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of God. Uh, I deal with people who are terminally ill. I find very often that they're angry or I find the relatives are very angry. And then there are people who try to comfort them. You know, there are ministers who say, well, it must be God's will. You know, or you shouldn't be angry at God. Why not? Well, he's not responsible. If he's not responsible, then why do I have it? Well, maybe it's God's will for you. Well, if it's God's will, then he's responsible. And I try to tell particularly the clergy you know, to get off of the defense of God. I think he's big enough to handle his own battles. But the person has to find that inner strength. You see, the secret to prayer is not that we get the answers. It's not that we get the help. It's not that we get the strength. 
is that by the process of prayer, we get into a place in which we feel more secure. We find all of a sudden that we can get through the things that we thought we could not. In a sense, it may just be that we're, we're able to endure whatever is going to happen, but I really believe that something mystical in the greatest spiritual sense happens and that we're transformed to tap into that unexpressed potential. It's very, very interesting. Step six talks about shortcomings. Step seven talks about defects of character. Humbly ask them to remove our shortcomings. We're entirely ready to have God remove for us all our defects of character. I was afraid that if I lost my defects of character, then I would, you know, who would Simon be? Simon was this perfectionist. Simon was this person who would do anything for anyone. Simon was this person who, if you had a problem, he'd come over to your house and he'd repair your sink or your stereo, or he knew the right printer to use, or he knew how to do typesetting. You know, I was the rescuer. And if I wasn't the rescuer, who would I be? And so what they said to me was that it says, you're only going to lose your defects of character. Simon, you'll always be a character. The only thing that you're going to lose in the process is your defects of character. The other word, shortcomings, means that you come up short. You don't reach your goal. Whose goal? Who told you you had to be that way? Sometimes it's parents. Sometimes it's boss. Most of the time, it's internalized. We've set the goal. And it's our own individual failures and frustrations. I'll talk about that when I close the next session with piece that I call somebody had to care. It's always been the frustration of not matching up, of not meeting up to my expectations of what I was supposed to be doing or what I should experience in a situation. What it said was I was going to find happiness because I wasn't going to come up short. I not only would be satisfied with what happened, I'd be happy that the various situations have happened. Things have happened in crazy ways. I was getting off. I've, this is the first marathon that I've done, oh, I guess since last summer. I got off the bandwagon because it was time for me to sit down and do more inventory work. It was time for me to get off of the caravan. I had spoken all over the country. I went to the Concord. I was asked to lead workshops. I was asked to lead workshops because it would help the cassette people. My apologies. But since the cassette people, you know, it's hard times. People were buying less cassettes. And we need some big names at some of the workshops. And we'll kind of leak, you know, we'll leak who's speaking at which workshops if there's a big name in it. So don't worry, you'll have plenty of people there. And I said, I don't need that pedestal for today. I need to sit outside. I only went to one workshop, and that was Sunday morning, and it was with being led by two people who had shared in a step room that was untaped. And we sat and we shared about dealing with death and dying. One child, one had a child who had a brain tumor that was removed and recurred. It was removed a second time, and they weren't quite sure what was going on. They knew they hadn't taken it all out, and they didn't know exactly what would happen. We shared with somebody who in the room had had cancer seven years before, had undergone 
a year and a half of chemotherapy and had never in the room shared that she had had Hodgkin's disease. She had never shared the pain of having Hodgkin's disease at 23 and going through menopause at 24 as a result of the chemotherapy. We had people who had touched each other. It's amazing. One out of four people will have cancer. Take a look around the room. And yet nobody talks about it in the rooms. And all of a sudden we found that more than half the people in that room had either had cancer or had either a spouse that had cancer or a child that had cancer. One of the things that Hans Selye and some of the research, when you don't work a 12-step program, you exhaust your ability to handle stress. Somebody was talking about, well, fat doesn't kill. When these skinny women who want to know why we were waiting, we were delayed an hour and a half taking off from New York yesterday. You know, she wanted to know why I was going to, to here, and I said I was going to speak at a conference. She says, you choose to go to Detroit? I said, no, I didn't choose. Somebody else was supposed to speak, and she became ill, and I got an emergency phone call on Tuesday, would I come? I took a look. It involved canceling a dinner engagement last night with a very close and dear friend. It involved making a lot of different arrangements. I couldn't fit into your schedule. I was supposed to speak after dinner. I've got to be back in New York late tonight for an early morning appointment tomorrow morning. But yet, you know, what I can do, I said, here's what I can do. If that'll meet the requirements of this marathon, then I'll be there. Because this program has given me my life back. The only thing I did at the Concord weekend, and in the past I've gone home with seven tapes because I had spoken and I wanted to have records of where I had spoken, all I did was read the state of recovery at the end of the last workshop on Sunday morning. I did service. I got everybody online who wanted to speak, and I said, look, it's very short. Don't wait until the applause are finished. You walk right up to the microphone. As soon as the applause finishes, you begin. And then as we had 15 minutes left and there were 10 people online, I said, please, just take one minute each. I'm going to lift up a time sign, you know, at 55 seconds. And please try to, you know, just share for a minute so that everybody has a chance, because this is the last workshop. I got so much out of just talking one-on-one, -on -one, out of risking. Took a tremendous risk. I had putting, been putting distance between myself and another relationship. So I was afraid. See, but all of a sudden, I felt secure. I had the humility to say, I don't know what's going to happen with this relationship. One day at a time, I'm committed to do my part. And this woman has to do her part. And it's a very painful, and it's, it involves you know, her finalizing a divorce. It involves her going and being her own person so that we have some time where she's independent and she's able to make the choice whether to be part of my life or not be part of my life so that I know who she is when she's independent and can choose to have her as part of my life, not to rescue her from a bad marriage. It's very, very painful. At night, for me, she wanted me to stay. She had a single room. I was rooming with three other people. I paid for the weekend, so it didn't really matter which bed I slept in. For me, I chose, because of the problems that I have with relationships, to go to my own bed. It would have been more fun to be with somebody else. 
I was able to spend quality time. We had 10 meals. I went up there Thursday morning. We had 10 meals. Six of them we shared together. Yes, seven actually. Three of them we were with the friends that we needed to be with. We gave each other the space. And if I really love her, which I'm beginning to experience because I don't know how to have a relationship. I'm in this program seven years and some months. I'm just beginning to learn how to relate to people on a close, intimate level. I can be tremendous friends with people. I give great hugs. You know, I've got a reputation here. I, first thing I heard when I came here you know, was, oh, Simon the hugger. <laughs> I won't tell you what they said in Seattle. When I went there for, in September, I, I should say I did a retreat in September. Uh, I was known as Simon the Mauler. <laughs> I had never, I went over to one person who had a stiff neck. Somebody said, so-and-so from Seattle has a stiff neck. She's that third one over there in the blue blouse. I went over and it felt better. And somebody said, gee, that looks nice. And I went around, you know, I think there were eight or nine women at the table. And I rubbed all of their backs. And some of them, I guess, got turned on. And some of them were turned off by the fact that they were turned on. <laughs> The, I don't know if it's the Seattle paper or the Region 1. Somebody called me up because they subscribed to it. And there was a poem for Valentine's Day. There was a love note in it. They've changed my name. They've used the, uh, it's almost a, a pun. Um, I'm a dentist, right? And it was written, they either, they either misspelled my name uh, or did something else, uh, you know, misspelled the title because it was written down as Simon the Molar, M-O-L-A-R. <laughs> as I said, I'm a dentist. Uh, and a very nice love poem was addressed to me. See, I get everything I need in these rooms. And I, today, I get the growth. You know, I always I have problems with Christmas. I'm Jewish, and in the neighborhood that I was raised, it was a time of tremendous anti-Semitism. I was the one visible Jew in that neighborhood. I was the only Jew on the block. Across the street from me was a mixed marriage, and they celebrated both, uh, both religions. They had a Christmas tree. They did not put out the Hanukkah lights. They put out Christmas lights. And what transpired as I grew up was that I had a tremendous problem with Christmas. Yesterday, I read something. I read the gift of the... Uh, Dickinson piece, A Christmas Carol. See, the gift is we have this character, Scrooge. He's not a very likable character. Most of us don't relate to him. Most of us relate to Tiny Tim. Most of us relate to the underdog. I unfortunately think that most of us are Scrooges. What the gift is is the fact that Scrooge, even at his old age, began to realize that without a spiritual awakening, his life was meaningless. And that these people had something that was silly. A little bit of religion, a little bit of commitment to each other, a lot of love for each other, had something that he wanted and he was willing to make the change. I want to close a little bit about amends so that we can you know, stay on schedule. I wrote down after that November inventory, they said, it's time to make amends. Just write it down. I wrote it down. I said, I'm not going to make these amends. And they said, well, start the list with somebody you know you'll never make amends to. <laughs> I felt terrible. Uh, when I, in 1967, 
I had joined a fraternal organization. Uh, I had become very active in it. I'm an organizer. I organized publicity for one of their dances. The people who were the leaders had, uh, some of them had started college. Others were going into college. Most of them were going away to college, and so they had to give up the leadership. It was May. It was a guy who had been in the organization for three years. He'd come in when he was very young. He stuttered. He had problems. He was overweight. I had just lost the weight. We went seven ballots, each of us running for chairperson. Well, after the seven ballots of tying, they finally said, Simon, we know that you've declined to say anything against the other person. Mark, we know that you have not said anything against Simon. We cannot, you know, you've each said what you would do if you were president of this group. You have to compare yourself. You don't have to attack the other person, but please tell us why you think you're better than the other person. And I had held back. I wanted to 